look at Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Our Lord is a week or so away from crucifixion, and this is the period of time where he's making his way into the city for what will likely be some of the last of his days on planet Earth before the resurrection. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to be able to look into the scriptures. What a privilege and honor it is to be able to observe what you have placed in your word. So speak to all of us tonight clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse one. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, go into the village over against you or opposite you. And straightway you shall find an ass tied and a coat with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say anything unto you, you shall say the Lord hath need of them. Straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Now that prophet is Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and the colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So we'll start here with, with verse 1. I think it's good to remember that when we look at the gospel narratives, all of them, even though they do not include the birth of Jesus, all of them deal with his crucifixion. So there was something about his death and the events leading up to his death that are important for the readers. You know as well as I do, it's all about the atonement. And it's about his death on the cross in our place for our sins. The beauty of Matthew and his gospel is that Matthew spends a lot of time showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So the reader would come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. And the whole point of this method is it's designed to help the reader understand that the Old Testament has all kinds of types and shadows that find their fulfillment in the person and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Matthew begins with prophecies in chapter one and continues with prophecies all the way throughout the book. So we're, we're, we're looking at Jesus as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. And of course, you can see in verse one He's a few miles away and he comes to this this city or this village of the of the uh, figs, Bethphage, and he's coming unto the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, then from the Mount of Olives, you have a very clear picture of a good portion of the city. And because the, the Temple Mount is one location and the Mount of Olives is another, you can kind of stand and look and have this wonderful panoramic view in different directions. So it's, it's here that Jesus speaks to two disciples about a man who has some beasts of burden that are on his property. Now, how would Jesus know this? Now, either he would have had to know 
that the individual lived there and had these animals or Jesus very simply had a wonderful manifestation of God's power in his life to to know exactly what was taking place. It should be said that Mark and Luke only referred to one animal. But Matthew here is speaking directly of a quote from Zechariah. No confusion there, but the reason we're dealing with the language of an ass and then in modern translations a donkey because there are some some specific things that 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 differentiate them a, a wild animal a beast of burden in ancient times would have been considered an ass a donkey was a domesticated one and of course a mule being the offspring with a mixture of a, of a horse in, in it so when we're considering this we, we want to remember that as Matthew is bringing this out as a, as a fulfillment of something that was prophesied hundreds of years ago, he wants us to know that Jesus comes into the city riding on the same kind of a creature that kings in the Old Testament would ride as kings of peace. Remember when David had his son Solomon crowned, David said, put him on my donkey and ride him through the city. And everybody would know. So donkeys were never known as, as animals or beasts of war. You'd ride a horse for that. But when we talk about an, an ass or a donkey or something like that, the, these had a specific connotation. Even judges talk about how the, the uh, people who were judging the people would ride on white donkeys. So there, there's the connotation here that the Lord wants us to see that his entry into Jerusalem was one that was to fulfill scripture and at the same time signify his royal character. And I think this is one of the reasons, again, why Matthew is bringing this out. And verse 3, if anybody questions you, you simply say the Lord has need of them. Now that's a pretty good answer. That's a pretty good, pretty good reply. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to be able to use that? If, if you were, you know, you pulled up in your driveway and uh, there was somebody that was coming out of your garage on your riding lawnmower. And, and you asked, what in the world are you doing? The Lord has need of this. You know, and just kind of keep on going. Now, I hope you wouldn't get offended if you saw me driving out of your driveway with your car. And I said, the Lord has need of them. But it's interesting, though, that, that Jesus would tell his two disciples to go and tell the owner of the animal this, this very thing. And then with the expectation that the owner would hear the reply and then relinquish the very thing that's under his possession. So this this shows us again that the power of the Lord, everything and everybody is under his command and control. And if it's something that has to do with his ministry or whatever it is that he's involved with, we should be willing to submit and give up whatever it is that God wants. This is one of the few places you'll run into, run into the, the fact that, that the Lord has a need. You do not often read of that, God needing anything. But here, the Lord hath need of them. So if the Lord was interested in them, then you have to understand God is very much interested in us. You know, God needs people. And when I say he needs people, he doesn't need people to exist, but he certainly needs people to proclaim the gospel all around the world. And since he's the head, we're the body. 
He's the spirit. We have flesh. He animates himself through us. And as I've told you before, it's through people. It's through you and me that God's able to drive taxi cabs, operate as a lawyer. You can teach in the classroom. It's through people like you and me that the Lord is able to farm, sweep a floor, or whatever somebody's occupation may be. And that kind of need is essential. Angels don't preach the gospel, at least not until Revelation chapter 14 they don't. But, but presently, it is us, the believers, who preach the gospel. So over and over again, the Lord has had need of different items and different things. And we should be willing to give to God everything that he needs to fulfill his redemptive design. If he needs your heart, if he needs your mind, if he needs your wallet, if he needs your purse, if he wants your spouse, if he wants your child, if he wants your will, you should be willing to put all of that at the disposal of God. And only a selfish man or woman would say to God, no, when God is expecting to hear the answer, yes. I think he said to uh, Isaiah, who can I send? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. So God wanted somebody to go. Isaiah said, I'll be the one that will go for you. So if you know that the Lord has need of you, then you have to understand that behind that need, there's a purpose that is attached to it. So God sends somebody into your life to witness to you about the gospel. Somebody puts a Bible into your hands, you read the Bible and come to know Christ. God gives you a good set of parents, you're raised in the fear and admonition of the word of the Lord. Somebody invites you to church, you come to church, you end up surrendering your heart and your life to the Lord. At any rate, once you become a Christian, you instantly begin to realize my sin have been, has been dealt with. I am now forgiven of all of my sins. I'm as innocent, as free, and as clean as a newborn baby. And because of that, I'm a debtor to God. I'm indebted to him for everything. He has given me a chance to start all over again. Why did he do all of that? Because he needs you. He can't tell the story in the earth or in a community, a village or a big city, except he has your lips. And he saves you and pulls you out of certain things so that he can then use you with your testimony to go back to the very same people or a different group of people and then begin to share your testimony. He needs our testimony. The Bible says you overcome by the word of the Lord and the testimony. So your testimony is powerful. Well then, in verse 4, you can see where this was done that it might be fulfilled. I find it interesting in looking at this that Jesus is going to come into town on a borrowed, a borrowed animal. But then if you think about it, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And let's not forget that he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this man, who according to 2 Corinthians 8 he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we who are poor might be made rich. It's beautiful to consider that even in his life, when he finally was dressed like a king in, the, in, the, in subsequent days to follow, when he finally had regal attire on, it was only because the Roman soldiers put it on him to mock him. 
And they bowed their knees and they pressed the thorny crown on his head and they took a rod and beat him on the head. And they said, hail the king of the Jews. And it was all satire. So think about it. Our Lord is fulfilling one prophecy after another. And most of what he's doing, he's doing with items that do not even belong to him. So God can do whatever he wants to do in your life. When God tells you to do something, you do not have to have everything up front. You just need to follow God. And I've, I've made this statement plenty of times. Most of the things God ever has, that he's told me to do in my life, he told me to do it and I didn't have the money when I began, so I just went on and did it anyway. And when you're following God, you'll find that the call is here and the call comes to you because the need is way back here in eternity. So at some point in, in this period of time when God needs you, then that call comes. And then once you begin to respond to the call, God equips a man or woman to do whatever it is that they're supposed to do. And here is our Savior. And he's coming into Jerusalem and his disciples are submissive enough to his will that, that they would follow through on his command. They did not say to him, why don't you walk over there? Why well, we got to go? Because you know, that's what some people would say. I mean, that is a couple of miles away. Why do we have to go over there? Why can't you do this? You've heard people complain and ask you to do what, what uh, you've asked them to do? Yeah. Some people don't want to, to have to trouble themselves to do anything for the Lord. God help them if God, if God says, I want you to go to somebody's house in another neighborhood and take them a bag of groceries. Or if the Lord says something like, I want you to pick up the telephone and call somebody and share with them this scripture. A lot of times we don't want to trouble ourselves, but these two disciples it didn't bother them at all. And verse five tells us the character of the person that Zechariah prophesied about meek, that somebody lowly, humble, uh, sitting upon an ass. Now, let's work on that word meek, because the scripture says the meek will inherit the earth. And when we speak of meek people, we think of humble people. What does the word humility mean? From a Latin word that means to lie down. So you essentially, you prefer somebody above yourself. To humble yourself in the presence of God or in the sight of God is to allow God's will to come first in your life. And so for a king to be meek, that stands in opposition to any attribute of pride or self-importance or arrogance. Jesus didn't have any of that. He said, I didn't come to be served, but I come to serve. That's what Jesus said. That kind of quality is good. So even with uh, animals then, and I always like this story when I think about this, this word with uh, the word meek. That is an adjective that is used to describe certain horses. You say a horse is meek, you're saying that horse is well trained. The horse has a good temperament. If you think of Alexander the Great, when his dad, Philip the Great, was out training horses one day, and they were out there breaking horses, and Alexander the Great, when he was just a little kid, 11 or 12 years old, he, he stood back and he watched his dad and the men were out there, and, and one by one, they were getting these horses fit to be ridden into war, but there was this one beautiful horse that was absolutely 
wild and nobody could get on this thing and stay on it. But Alexander, standing and watching from kind of behind the scenes, he observed what the problem was. It wasn't that the horse had a bad attitude or a bad temperament. The horse was afraid of its shadow. and said the thing was skittish. It would just be jumpy all the time. So when the men went to settle down for lunch, Alexander went over there and he grabbed the horse and he, he just kind of positioned the horse to get that horse so that it was facing the sun and couldn't see its shadow. And here, lunchtime is over, Philip and them come back, and there's Alexander trotting on that horse. And later on in life, when Philip died and Alexander ended up becoming a, a, a warrior going throughout the world to fight, it was that horse that he rode out into the rivers, and people followed him by the thousands as he went out and discovered all these different worlds. They say that horse was so meek. They said when Alexander, historians, say when Alexander walked up to that horse, that horse would take one leg, stick it out, and just bow down and let him climb up on him. So trained was that horse that he'd try to kill any other man that ever came near it if he tried to climb on him. But Alexander's spirit so dominated that beast. So think about that. When, when we say that Jesus was meek, we're describing a quality that, that definitely isn't seen very often in this world. That's what he was. And for him to be king of kings, and for Revelation chapter 1 to say, we've been made kings and priests unto the Lord, that means he's our king. But how does his reign look in your life? Have you surrendered everything? Do you allow him to occupy your life and control the reins of your heart? See, that, that's what it means to be meek. To, to let God do what he wants to do. So verse 6, these disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. I love that sentence, as he commanded them. Don't do any more, don't do any less. Fulfill the letter of the law. Do what God has told you to do. You don't have to add anything to it. He, they did as he commanded them. So verse 7, they, so they brought <coughs> the ass and the coat and put on them there, what's that next word? Clothes. Looky there. So now, rather than Jesus having a wonderful and beautiful saddle, people just taking off their garments and laying them upon the beast, and Jesus climbs on top of this. So he didn't even have his own saddle when he came riding into the city. And the story in the Old Testament of Jehu, when he became uh, king and was anointed. If you're familiar with that, it says that when, when he was getting ready to come into the city, the people took their garments, his captains, I should say, took their garments and placed them on the horse that he was riding. And then here he comes right on into town. And all of that was a form and an act of submission to say, we have given everything unto you and we submit to your rule and your authority and this is exactly what these disciples and others were saying here so verse 8 when a great multitude spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches from the trees and straw them in the way this is what they were doing they were acknowledging this man is exceptional this man is royalty this man is powerful he's more than just a prophet from from nazareth we accept him as someone who can do wonderful things 
And this is why they stood along the, the roads there and praised him. So verse 9, multitudes went before and followed, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So in verse 8, <clears throat> verse eight, if we've got a very great multitude, that's a lot of people. That would seem to me like it would be more of a hindrance if you're riding into town on some kind of an animal and everybody's throwing their clothing out there. It seems like these would be obstacles, you know, just kind of slow everything down. If you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people doing this, and if you've got people cutting down branches from the trees, I don't know if they're going with the branches down here or if folks are climbing up top to get branches, but I guarantee you one thing, people had to uh, exert themselves in order to participate in this. So praise and worship requires action and activity. It, it requires of us participation. So you, you, don't want, you don't want other people to praise God for you, do you? In fact, I think it's in the, one of the other Gospels when this is going on, and they say, look, we need to stop all of this. And, and the Lord made it very plain. If they don't praise me, there, there's some stones here that will stop shout, shouting and praising me. So you should be the kind of person that is a worshiper and loves God. Don't, don't worry about how the noise is going to affect anybody else. You just go ahead and praise God anyhow and let them deal with, with all of that. So, so all of this in verse 8 is making a beautiful picture of people who are going out of their ways to, to enter into praise and worship. And then verse 9, we have what they are saying because they're following him. So now we've got people going up the hill and we've got people coming down the hill and everybody's following the king and they want to be part of it. It's kind of like whenever they have a new coronation of the queen or something like that over in England and they're lying in the streets and everybody's so excited to see the queen come on, wave her hand or just, you know, give some kind of a showing and, and all of these things. And even with our president, when they're inaugurating, people stand out in the streets and they just wait for him to come by so somebody can walk behind the car and everybody is doing this and clapping and praising and all of that. Here is a crowd of people that are impressed with who Jesus is, but the same crowd that loves him today, there's going to be another crowd that hate him tomorrow. People are fickle. One day they say they love you. The next day they're hugging you, not because they're trying to tell you we appreciate you. They're looking for that soft spot in your back where they can stick a knife. And, and we have it here in verse 9. So they, they followed him and they, they cried and they said, Hosanna. So do you think they were, do you think these were very passive and quiet people? When it says they cried aloud, do you think they were making a whole lot of noise? Think so? I think they were making a whole lot of noise. But what do you think would happen for you to go to other fellowships? What do you think would happen if, if on Sunday morning when, when they started the hymn service or the praise and worship service, and in the middle of all that, you just shouted hallelujah as loud as you could? I guarantee you, there'd probably be one or two ushers that'd come tap you on the shoulder. Hey, could you please come with us? Yeah, but but if if you would have done this on this day, all you would have all you would have accomplished was the fact that you would have fit in with thousands of others. 
We think that the only way to worship and praise God is by being quiet. We think with God you have to be silent and reverent and filled with awe and dead. But, but, but for your grandson on the wrestling mat and, and at the rodeo and at the basketball game, you can make as much noise as you want, use as much emotion as you want, and it's fine. And everybody screams and yells. But then when it comes to praising the king of kings, then we think the best way to do it is to just be passive and, and quiet. I don't know about you, but when, when I, I, I have to go sometimes to funerals and, and stand in services like that, and occasionally I've got to um, do funerals and, and other churches and stuff like that. But the one thing I do know is if, if I'm in the middle of people like that, I'm doing everything I can just to, to keep from passing out, you know. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so full of life and fire. Everything in me just wants to praise God and glorify the Lord. And I'm sure there have been a few times in, in Red Cloud when I've had to go to a funeral and a song was being sung and everybody was just standing there singing like they didn't know who wrote the song or who the song was about. And right there in the middle of it, I just, you know, hands just kind of do one of these here. And I just go to worshiping the king and you know, turn around and look, and everybody's just looking at you like, do you know where you're at? You are not at Revival Tabernacle. You are in our church, and you behave yourself. See? Well, remember, the multitudes that went before and after cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's some things that are hard to contain. And, and this kind of exuberance and enthusiasm and praise, it's contagious. We should never muffle it when somebody is uh, praising and glorifying the king. There's a way to do it that, that's tactful, and I've seen people do it in a way that's tasteless. But, you know, in, in, in our worship of the Lord, when David gets out there and dances before the ark of God as it's coming into Jerusalem, it's his wife that gets upset with him. Everybody else is dancing with him. And typically the people that murmur and complain are the ones that aren't dancing. They're the ones standing around watching. They're the ones that are not praising God. So verse, verse 9 is, is very clear. They consider Jesus to be a son of David. They certainly believe he's coming in the name of the Lord and he is worthy of the highest praise. There was so much noise made that in verse 10... When he was coming to Jerusalem, the whole city was moved and they said, who in the world is this? I don't know how big the city was at this time, but I do know about 40 years later when Nero was on the throne, he did a census. And the Roman historian says there were two million and seven hundred thousand people that came up to the feast of Passover under Nero's reign. So that was four decades later. So if you've got that many people talking about what's going on on the top of that hill and it's going all around the city, there has to be a whole lot of praise and worship that's taking place and a lot of excitement around this man, Jesus. And that's the way it should be. Why should people be more excited about LeBron James than Jesus Christ? And why should people be more excited about Nebraska volleyball than Jesus Christ? Oh, I, maybe I should have said Kansas or something. <laughs> 
Okay, here we are. Okay. And I like Nebraska volleyball. Okay, but, but, but here's the thing. The whole city was moved. Everybody's asking the question. So when people start asking the question, they need an answer. So there's an opportunity to witness. And whenever someone asks you a question like, who is Jesus? Do you have an answer? And you provide an answer. If somebody asks you the question, who is Jesus and what is the significance of his life? You should be able to open up the scriptures and explain to them what this all means. Even if you don't have a Bible, if nothing else, give your own testimony. And when you get around the people you work with and then your neighbors, I'm sure these questions come out. They may come out in a different way. They may say something like, why do you even bother with church? Or they'll say something like, well, we don't enjoy our preacher. Do you enjoy yours? See? Or they may say, say something like, I don't see the point with, with going to churches. They're all hypocrites anyhow. Why do you go? How can you believe the Bible? The Bible is just a book of stories and tales. What makes Jesus any different than Buddha? And when they ask questions like that, you should have an answer. Because the scripture is plain in, in our description of him. No one is running around any temple anywhere screaming and shouting and praising Buddha. You can go to any mosque on planet Earth. None of them are screaming and shouting how much they love Muhammad and praising the Lord with a smile on their face. They're angry. They're upset. because They're worshiping a God they don't know. But when we come in contact with Christ, he moves into our heart. And there's something totally different about a people that are praising the Lord and love God with their whole heart than people who don't. Anytime in the fall in Lebanon, you can figure out when the Shiites are having their great feast and they're slaughtering all the lambs over there to get ready to break their fast. Look out there in the streets, you'll find thousands of Shiite Muslims and they'll have either green, red or blue scarves tied around their head. Somebody will have a short knife or a long knife and they'll all be marching through the streets and they'll be shouting Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And then they'll take that knife and cut their forehead and let the blood run down. Allahu Akbar. Thousands of them in the streets doing that annually. And this has been going on for hundreds of years. But nobody ever looks happy. Nobody ever has a smile on their face. All I'm trying to tell you is that when Jesus comes in, and his presence is there. It produces rejoicing. I know why some churches don't look happy when they're worshiping God. He's not there. He's not in their hearts. He's not in their midst. And you can't, this is something you can't fake. You can't fake this. When, when, the, when the reality of God's presence is there, it is going to provoke a response. You cannot plug into 220 and then not receive some kind of a current if, if there's something that's flowing to it. And there's no way you're going to be able to touch a live wire and not show some kind of animation or enthusiasm when it comes to it. If you get plugged into God, I promise you there's going to be something that burns and comes alive inside of you. There's a friend of mine down in, down in Tulsa and, and he and his wife were at a restaurant one time. And she had on one of these dresses, had like a long sleeve hung down a little bit, and they were sitting at a table where they had these, these uh, candles and stuff. And so her husband, another couple, 
sitting there and, and, and she's reaching for something across the table there and the men are discussing something and then the sleeve catches on fire. So she jumps up, she's screaming and she's yelling, she's on fire, it's catching fire, going roof at And her husband is just sitting there, just shaking his head, just looking around and just terribly embarrassed. And her friend and the other guy, they're just laughing at her. And so the husband finally said, look, you, wow, can't you just calm down? I mean, you're embarrassing us. And she looked at him. She said, Mark, if you catch fire, you, you act just like I am. Basically what she was saying was, if, if, if the fire of God is on you, then you'll make some kind of noise or you'll be animated also. And the reason some people don't is because there's no fire. There's just nothing there. But if there's something there, you'll want to cut down branches. You'll want to take your garments off. You'll want to make some kind of noise because you're thinking about all the things that God has done. So the whole city was moved. And then verse 11, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Thank the Lord somebody knew who he was. Yeah, somebody knew who he was multitude said all of them together were shouting out this is that Jesus the prophet of Nazareth so who who do you say he is and who is he to you what kind of a relationship do you have with him when you consider all that he has done the whole point of this trip to Jerusalem was to set up everything connected with your redemption and mine Scripture tells us clearly that with the life that he gave, it was entirely sacrificial. The story of him coming into the city to prepare to be crucified is important because it demonstrates that people will praise you one day and later on they'll demand that you be crucified. And the people that love you today may not love you tomorrow. But the example that Jesus shows is that even when the people are yelling crucify you rather than shouting Hosanna, you still don't have to retaliate and you don't have to say anything in return. Just walk with God. Be meek, be humble, be holy, and don't allow the crowd to change your attitude. They did all of this yelling, but their attitude never caused Jesus to act in pride. And then the last thing I'll point out with all of this is Something to consider. When Jesus climbed up on that donkey and they're making their way through town and all the people are out there putting their garments and branches down there and everybody's clapping and screaming and shouting. Can you imagine how silly it would have been if the donkey would have rolled his shoulders back and said, I can't believe all these people are out here to see me. They're out here to see me. And, and, and let's never forget, it was John the Baptist that said, I have to decrease that he might increase. Because there are some people that when it has to do with the kingdom of God or something that has to do with Jesus and large numbers of people, they really do want to magnify themselves. And they want the applause. They want the acclimates and all of that. But the bottom line is we have to always remember if people are praising you, it's not you. They're praising Christ that's in you. And if you ever forget that, that's when pride comes in. Self-righteousness becomes something that is, is hard to deal with. And as it says in the Proverbs, that, that haughty spirit, it precedes a terribly big fall. 
And pride is what precedes destruction. You want to see yourself fall apart, become a prideful person and think that it's all about you, all about what you have and your gifts, your talents and all of that, and there'll be nothing but trouble. This donkey just simply carried the Savior. That's all we do. We're bearers of the King. We just, we just bear fruit for, for him. We take his name throughout the world. We carry his name from village to village. We want people to know everything there is to know about him. Who we are is of very little significance. But that they know him. That the world may know him. Okay. So I think when we get back into this, we'll look at how our Savior went into the temple and we'll see how this meek man decided he was going to throw some folks out of God's house. Oh, I love that ministry there. <laughs> yeah. There's some people that need to be asked to leave, and then there's some people need to be put out. And this is what, what Jesus does in the next one. So this, this one ought to be interesting because... The uh, temple today or the church today pretty much is a fairly good money-making operation, you know. And if you consider that a church is supposed to be a not-for-profit or non-profit entity, and you consider the shirts and CDs and cups that we sell, there's a lot of money being made in the, in the kingdom and when the Lord gave the disciples all that power, he said, freely you have received, freely give. I've told people that for years when they say, how in the world can you guys give away CDs? I mean, how, if, if you don't sell them, how are you going to make money off them to be able to pay for them? I said, well, the people who take the CDs, sometimes they see their family members and friends blessed by it. Sometimes they see their family members and friends led to Christ because of it, and I said, people still give and provide for the offerings. And that's a, that's a lovely thing to know. However, if, if I do come in one day and I want to sell you guys some mugs with my picture on it, <laughs> I want everybody to be really nice. I want Bradley to have a mug with my picture on it when he's sitting at the lunch table in school. See? And they say, well, who is that? Oh, that's Pastor Darrell. See, yeah, that'd be just wonderful. We'll avoid that. We'll avoid that. Praise the Lord. Come on, let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to be able to look into the scriptures over and over again. We find that there is amazing stuff in there. And we know that when your son was making his way into Jerusalem, there was a specific plan behind all of that. Thank you for, for sending him to die on the cross. We're so glad we've come to a saving knowledge of him. We pray that you would help us to move the villages in this region with our praise. We pray that we would be known as people that love you and worship you, that we would not be ashamed nor afraid to praise your name and to glorify you because you're a living God. You're not a dead God. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said. Amen, amen, amen.